Hi, I'm Michael Hawk, and welcome to Nature's Archive Podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative people on the forefront of conservation, ecology, birding, and environmental education. If you have a fascination with the natural world, this podcast is for you. My promise to you is that you'll not only learn what my guests have accomplished, but also how and why. And I also promise that you'll learn plenty of fascinating things about the nature that surrounds us. So give it a listen. And if you truly care about the environment and enjoyed what you heard, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or your favorite service, and share this episode with a friend. Thank you. My guest today is Danielle Husband. Danielle is a graduate student studying dragonflies and damselflies at the McIntyre Lab at Texas Tech University. In particular, she is studying the West Texas playas, salinas, and urban catchments and their suitability for odonates. Today's episode is full of great topics. We discuss the importance of wetlands in general and drill down into the specifics of the semi-arid environment of West Texas. The playas and salinas of West Texas are fascinatingly unique and also play a critical role in groundwater system of the Ogallala Aquifer. The Ogallala Aquifer is one of the largest groundwater sources in the world, and it's critical for much of the United States agriculture. Aquifers are being drawn down throughout the world, and the Ogallala is no exception. Playas and other wetlands and waterways recharge these aquifers. But is it enough to offset the extraction? Danielle describes the challenges of recharge and aquifer depletion. Next, we dive into Danielle's primary area of research, odonates. She covers the basics of odonata life history, including some differences between damselflies and dragonflies. And did you know that some dragonfly species are migratory? Danielle also describes how she constructed the Odinate surveying protocol that she uses in her field research, some of the interesting discoveries she's made along the way, and helpful tips for naturalists to find and identify dragonflies. It's a wide-ranging and fun discussion that I hope you enjoy as much as I did. So without further delay, Danielle Husband. Danielle, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Michael. So Danielle, I saw some of your research that was really intriguing to me, and rather than me trying to describe it to the listeners, how about you give an introduction of who you are and what you do and what your areas of research are? Sure thing. Um, so hi, my name is Danielle Husband, and I'm actually a master's student at Texas Tech University here in Lubbock, Texas. I'm in the McIntyre lab, and we primarily study odonates, so dragonflies and damselflies, and we also study landscape-level changes. So I am particularly interested in wetlands. Uh, so a lot of my research handles wetlands and the odonates, as we call them, uh, that live there. So this is a semi-arid area, so we don't receive a lot of rainfall. So my paper really covered the importance of having water around at all, which is primarily in urban wetlands, which are deeper, they're modified from the types of wetlands that we have naturally here, and end up being really important resources um, for these uh, aquatic invertebrates. And for anyone who hasn't actually lived in the West or spent some significant time in the West, water out here really has an outsized importance. If you add good water habitat, suddenly you have an oasis effect. You have an extremely biodiverse habitat. You know, it's very different than what you see in the East. So I'm curious, what drew you to this area of research in the first place? So kind of randomly, I actually started out, well, I got my bachelor's in 2017 and then moved to California. I'm originally from Florida. And uh, I was working at a hawk watch migration site, Golden Gate Raptor Observatory. And oddly enough, we were also counting migratory dragonflies uh, in the fall. And so I was like, wow, okay, dragonflies migrate. I had no idea about that. And I've kind of held on to that interest in odonates ever since um, in the different places I've lived. And then ever so randomly, I got a call for a master student position here at Texas Tech. 
to uncover the mysteries of Odinates here in these weird wetlands. And I was like, yes, that sounds adventurous. It's exactly right up my alley. And a new place in the country I never would have expected to have lived, which is, I think, the story of a co- many of the graduate students out there. So Odinates were really the hook then that drew yes. you to where you're at and now your current research that takes a little bit bigger picture view, you know, in addition to the Odinates. Exactly. Yeah, more of a landscape level scale. But yeah, I'm all about the bugs. <laughs> Underrepresented and very, very important. I would love to get into the Odinates as well as we talk today. Uh, I've been, you know, that's one of the topics I really wanted to get deep into here on the podcast. And I, I have a few possible guests in the works, but just haven't been able to do it yet. But Ooh. nonetheless, if we have a little time later, I, I'd like to get into that. I'd love to do that for sure. You know, I'd like to talk about your paper, but there's probably some context that we should set first about maybe the taxonomy of wetlands. And in your semi-arid environment, you, you touched on what an urban wetland might be, but perhaps compare and contrast a bit what the natural case would be and more details about how the urban environments are modified. Oh, for sure. So maybe I'll just start by talking about why wetlands are so important to biodiversity. Um, So as you've kind of touched on, water is important for life. It is biologically necessary. You have to have water around, as well as it's also like behaviorally and ecologically necessary. A lot of species rely on water sources for, say, migratory stopovers for their entire life cycles. Wetlands are also really important areas with a lot of primary producers, uh, which for those who aren't aware are like algae, bacteria, plants, And because there's such a rich amount of those, there's a lot of species and organisms that can actually derive nutrients from them. So they're hubs of nutrients at these wetlands. And then there's wetlands found all over the world. Like, first of all, I didn't know wetlands would be found in this area of the country. I never would have guessed that. But they're actually found on all continents except Antarctica, from the coast to the interior of most continents, which is pretty amazing. Considering, yeah, we don't think much about wetlands. Many people don't. And then wetlands are also really important sources of water for other ecosystems. So rivers, streams, as well as recharge of aquifers that I'm sure we'll we'll talk about uh, in a bit. But kind of similar to a lot of these other water and land interconnections, um, wetlands are really defined by, first of all, their soils, the fact that they hold water certain times of the year, and then vegetation. So soils are hydric. That just means that they have water at some point in the year. And they're really full of rich peaty, nutrient-rich kind of, I guess, food rather for these plants, these uh, vegetative called hydrophytic plants. And they grow in these saturated soils. And then hydrology comes in, sets the amount and timing of water, which is periodic to permanent. uh, That will really dictate what can grow there and at what times of the year. From these different definitions of wetlands and how important they are, and there really are four different types found throughout the world. Some of them may sound familiar to many. Marshes, uh, which are periodically wet. So if you think of a marsh, you can think of a coastal marsh. There's inland marshes that are obviously non-tidal. Plenty of types in there. There's swamps, which have surface water, fresh water, and a lot more trees and shrubs. Bogs, which are up in the northern latitudes. Uh, So these are kind of like spongy peat, think of moss carpeted, evergreen kind of environments. And then fens, um, which are similar, but slightly different. I won't go too much into the the differences there, but they're also found in glacial areas. And I'm guessing there's subclassifications and even more nuance because I literally just drove across Utah 
and saw cool. some really high salinity wetlands. And then you have mm-hmm. things like vernal pools. Uh, so I suspect that it gets even more nuanced. Yes. I mean, yeah, the salinity is a huge component. What's around the surrounding context of a wetlands can also define what the wetland does and who's there and who isn't. There's a lot of complexity in there for sure. I'm definitely distilling it down. (laughs) And I hear a lot of people say that at least for land-based habitats or biomes that wetlands are generally the most biodiverse. Is that accurate? That is pretty accurate. Yeah. Tons of animals end up there. I actually found a a stat here. Uh, More than one third of the United States threatened and endangered species live only in wetlands. So it's a lot of of diversity and a lot of uh, species at risk too, which I'm sure we'll talk a bit about. Um, But yeah, they're very diverse. And it's sort of interesting to think about the history of the United States and a, a number of other countries for that matter. This might sound like a bit of a tangent, but for my birthday, I got a shirt from my kids, and it's uh, it had a map of the national parks on it in the in the United States. And one of my kids just this week said, "How come there aren't many national parks in the center of the United States?" And you know, I commented like, "You know, those lands have traditionally been valued more for their agricultural mm-hmm. use than sort of the natural use. Yes. Uh, so wetlands kind of traditionally have gotten filled in and built upon." This is a very broad question, but what is the general state or health of of wetlands these days and conservation of those wetlands? So kind of the like summary statement of that is we've lost a lot. And despite that, we are still losing more, more wetlands are being lost. Uh, So a good report for folks to check out is the 2018 International Union for the Conservation of Nature Global Wetland Outlook Report, which offers a lot more um, detail about this. Um, But one of the facts they give out is since 1700, 87% of our global wetland resources have been completely wiped off the planet, which is pretty wild, Um, actually three times the rate of deforestation. And so where we've seen that loss, um, obviously, North America and Europe, inland wetlands have been basically, you know, like you've said, you know, filled in, chosen for agriculture rather than their wetland value um, and really modified today, though. Asia's coastal wetlands are really, really being destroyed quickly for aquaculture, um, for development purposes. So they're kind of, in some ways, as we compare the developing and undeveloped world, the quote unquote undeveloped world is is now reaching the point where we we were back in the day in Europe and North America with uh, taking out our wetlands. They're not valued. And yeah, that's extremely sad because like I mentioned, there's just so many reasons why they're excellent to have around. Mm-hmm. As a naturalist, if I see a, a pond or, or even like a puddle when I'm out looking around, it's like, that's what I'm drawn to. <laughs> that's what I want it to is, go look at. It is an epicenter of life. It really can be, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Why don't we then talk a little bit about your research specifically and, and what you were looking at? And, you know, something that since, you know, people listening to this might be who knows where, you know, across the globe, maybe start with a little bit of a description of your area there in I guess it's the Texas Panhandle. It is. Yeah, we uh, we call it the Southern High Plains, too. So we are a part of the Great Plains region. So that's this, uh, basically, gosh, all the central states, <laughs> Montana down to Texas, which has primarily been grasslands in the past. So for me, the primary wetland that I focus on and that is the most numerous in my region are called playas. Uh, so these are shallow depressional wetlands and 
there at one point was 25,000 of them in this area alone in the Texas Panhandle. As you kind of mentioned, there's been a lot of like agricultural change in this region. We are, we are the cotton belt here in the Texas Panhandle. So uh, it's estimated that 86% of these playa wetlands have been lost and about 0.2% are left quote unquote unmodified, which we can talk more about what it means to modify a playa. But I'm personally in my research and what I'm interested the most in is looking at playas and uh, a couple other wetland types in this region, including saline lakes, which many people don't realize we have in this area, and looking at the odonate community within them. So there's a lot of different factors and changes all these different wetlands, depending on where they are in the landscape, have undergone, be that in water quality and habitat quality and uh, salinity, for example, as well. And so I'm looking at kind of the whole suite of factors to see why a certain species is at this site versus at this site across two summers. So my first field season was last summer, and now I'm finishing up my my last for my master's research. So the goal, in effect, is to basically get a better understanding of wetlands in this region, as well as the odonate species that are vastly undersurveyed as well. Kind of, you know, who lives where? That's kind of the one of the more basic questions of my research. I saw a post that you made on Instagram basically indicating that, that your area hadn't, I, I don't remember the details, I apologize, but uh, I, I think that the Odinates hadn't really been surveyed thoroughly in your area until now. Is that correct? That is correct. Part of the reason is that private lands are king here in Texas. So 95% of the area of the entire state of Texas is on private land, which has a couple, you know, is it's good in a lot of ways, but does have a couple issues with understanding Uh, biodiversity in Texas, you have to have private landowner permissions to get on properties. And lucky for me, writing research is helpful in that I don't have any endangered species I'm studying. This is a very low maintenance kind of study. I'm not, you know, I'm not digging anything up. I'm really just going to look and see what species are where, grab a couple vials of water and, and run back to the lab. So I've gotten really, really lucky with the properties and the landowners I've gotten in touch with to be able to do this research because, yeah, you can't go tromping around on somebody's property in somebody's cotton fields in this area. Um, that's just not not respectful. Let's just say that. Not respectful, and you don't know how they'll take it if they find a stranger on their land. <laughs> yes, it does help to have a Texas Tech University vehicle every once in a while, but I always make sure I have permission before I do mm-hmm. any any research on anybody's land. Absolutely. So you use the word playa. Can you tell me what a playa is? How do you define that? Yeah. So a playa is a shallow depressional wetland, and it's actually formed by a number of different processes, including wind, uh, waves. There used to be a, I believe it was an intercontinental sea at some point uh, in this region, and other kind of dissolution processes. All the playas have, kind of as we talked about before with wetlands, they all have hydric soil. The soil that at some point has been inundated, it's peaty, it's full of nutrients. And playas are amazing in that they are actually our number one recharge resource for the Ogallala Aquifer, um, which we can talk more about in a bit. Playas, I hadn't seen a ply with water <laughs> since this summer um, because of the extreme drought we've been in here in the Texas Panhandle. You really can't see them until you're on them because of how flat the landscape is, but they're pretty beautiful. So, you know, when you say you can't see it until you're on it, it's like you observe the soil change and the slight depression. That's how you detect that it is a, an area that occasionally has water? 
Yes, yes. You'll see usually, yeah, a bit of a depression and you'll also see um, wetland plants. So different types okay. of emergent vegetation that it would appear if, if this area had water, um, which varying amounts depending on how long or how, how short the sick playa had had water in the past. Is it typical then? I know it is a substantial drought across so much of the West this year, but in, in a normal year or normal-ish year or even in a wet year, is it expected that a playa will, will be dry at some point in the year? Yes, yes. So they're really characterized in that they will be dry at some point. We call it hydro period for the length of time that any of these playas or any wetland in general holds water. And so we kind of describe playas as having very erratic hydro period. And so it may have water for a couple of weeks. It could have water for a couple of hours. It could have water for a couple of days. But because of the drought that we have, which is naturally occurring, we are a semi-arid region. These playas will, yeah, it really... It really varies year to year who will have water and who doesn't. Like last summer in June, I believe we got a quarter of an inch of rain. So nothing had water at all. It was, we were in full drought. This past June, we had about six inches of water. Mm. Um, so we actually, I had a fighting chance to get out and actually see a real playa in person, which was amazing. Yeah, hydro period is a really important concept uh, to cover with playas because they really can vary. So to be clear then, your research, you're not going looking at, say, agriculture ponds or urban lakes or, you know, things like that. It's strictly these seasonal playas. So, yeah, that's one of them. I also, so I'll go through the four types because I actually think that's okay. that's pretty interesting too. Uh, so, yes, I focus on playas, um, as we talked about. They're kind of, they are the natural wetlands in this area. I also study salinas. So there's saline lakes. We have about 40 in this region. They're all connected to, or were at some point, we can talk about that too, connected to springs from the Olala Aquifer. So that provides water to them year round, which is really unique because everything else is, like I mentioned, dry at some point. We also have former salinas. So those are salinas that don't have that spring connection anymore, sad face. And then uh, urban playa lakes is what we call an urban modified playa, usually for stormwater drainage in this region. I'll tell you, I'm struggling here because there's so many paths I, I want to take this. There's a, a lot of things. <laughs> so I, I'm going to back up and ask another playa question, if sure. you don't mind. Yeah. You know, I was thinking as you're describing these different habitats, if there's, you know, if, if something's spring fed and you have water most or all the year, then I suspect you're going to see a lot more fish in those environments, which would provide a, like a predatory pressure on the habitat. But a playa, uh, perhaps not, unless unless there's a fish species who's burying eggs that, you know, emerge or, you know, something crazy like that. What are sort of the differences you see in the life in these different habitats? So what I focus on is primarily the the types of habitat necessary for odonates in certain parts of their lives. So what I look for is is primarily edge vegetation. So when I go to, say, an urban park, for example, do they have reeds that are poking up out of the water right by the water's edge? Or is it just mowed completely all the way down to the wetlands? Uh, I also look for vegetation. So vegetative mats, like algae, because they are actually really important for odonate nymphs. So the young odonates, as well as for, we call it ova position. So basically when a female odonate's dropping eggs into the water. So I'm looking for those two things primarily, and those differ between the types for sure. I don't check out fish. I wish I, <laughs> that's something I should have done, but I don't believe there's many fish in playas because there just isn't long enough time mm -hmm. uh, that they're wet. But certainly our urban lakes here, they stock them with fish and that has to have some sort of pressure on them, I'd assume. Mm -hmm. 
let's get to the headline then. What have you found in this research so far? Oh, okay. So, <laughs> so obviously I'm still out collecting data and I have zero data on playas until this summer. So I have, can't really speak much to what kind of diversity is at playas besides what's happened in the past other studies. But certainly I've been able to survey a lot of salinas um, that have never been visited before. I am looking for species that are only found at certain types. I think that's really important because they may be quote unquote specialists, uh, perhaps depending on the hydro period or the specific habitat requirements. So for salinas, there are a couple species I've only found at salinas. For example, one is the bleach skimmer, which is a really cool dragonfly. Uh, which I think is neat. And they may have some sort of biological conditioning to survive salinity. I'm not sure, but they're there, which is interesting. For urban urban environments, there's been a couple species too that I've only found there, uh, which perhaps has something to do with their development period. Maybe they need longer amounts of time to mature underwater before they, before they fly away in the spring and summer. But that's it primarily. I have a lot of analysis to do this fall. <laughs> with water quality. But needless to say, I'm, I'm collecting data that hasn't been collected before. So hopefully something something juicy will come out of it. It's, your, it's always the hope of science. <laughs> and I know the paper that, that I saw, which, you know, obviously is not including the playas, you know, a conclusion that you had come to is that the urban settings did have a greater diversity than some of the agricultural areas. Mm-hmm. And to, to me, like I, I had no idea what you would find because I'm thinking, okay, urban is probably more disturbed. There's maybe different chemicals or runoff from, you know, city streets or whatever that's, you know, working its way into these areas. So first of all, am I characterizing this correctly? And is the longevity of water in those areas really, you know, is that what you think is the primary driver? So definitely. I think many people have seen a stormwater pond sometime in their life. Basically, it's an addition of urban infrastructure to prevent flooding, right? And so when you place a wetlands, and these, these are actually, some of these are more quote unquote playa looking than others. So they're circular and some of them, well, all of them are deeper than they usually should be, which makes me think that hydro period is really the driver of those odonates living in those environments. Because frankly, the vegetation isn't great which would be another really important thing for their lives and their life cycle. But water being at such a scarcity in this region, I really think is going to be the driver of those communities. Got it. And for urban planners who are creating these to, to help with you know, mitigation of flood risk, what would be holding them back from saying, well, let's take it to the next level and making for a more natural you know, vegetation state? I think it would be money. I think it would be money. I don't think it's, you know, if they had some collaborators that maybe worked with, you know, maybe some nonprofits in the area, some different growers to provide, you know, some plantings, I think it's possible to get there. But because this is part of FEMA and their entire like storm mitigation infrastructure program, uh, there really isn't much focus at all on creating quote unquote better urban wetlands. Mm. It's really like when I think of one of the better wetlands in our region, I think of Clap Park which is this very unassuming wetland by the Lubbock Arboretum. And what makes it special is that it has different types of habitat. There are trees through it. There are large stands of marsh reeds. And I really can't tell you why that one is different. I think they just decided, let's plant this one. I really don't know the history of it, but it is a very productive site for odonates. And I wish we could have it in the sad sites that are just mowed 
mowed to the ground because mm-hmm. <laughs> it really makes a difference for a lot of different types of wildlife. Yeah, and I had no idea that that infrastructure was kind of a federally driven infrastructure in a lot of cases. I just leapt to the conclusion that it was local municipalities or counties that were uh, that were doing this. So that's an interesting observation that probably does create some barriers for local groups to you know get engaged. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, this area is so flat. I mean, th- these these urban playa lakes are really providing the ability to have infrastructure and not have the damages associated with flooding, uh, mm-hmm. urban flooding, because it's so flat. I think this really sounds like a target-rich environment for research. And, you know, you mentioned the, I think you said the bleach skimmer <laughs> that you found. So it got me thinking that, I again, another probably naive assumption that I made is that, you know, dragonflies, odonates seem like a fairly well-studied taxa in that, you know, they're relatively large. There's a reasonable number of species. You know, it's not like certain like beetles, you know, where, where there are hundreds of thousands of beetles <laughs> that you could go research. And they can be identified in the field, you know, at least as adults, you know, pretty easily. There's a few challenges, of course. But uh, given all of that, I'm getting the impression that life histories of at least a few of these aren't really understood yet. That's definitely true. So like I mentioned before about the private property. So for a long time, this area Basically, the entire Great Plains region, because of its prevalence of private property and our culture, we really didn't understand species ranges. It was kind of this dark area in the middle of the country. Like, well, we assume some eastern species are there because of habitat, maybe a couple western, but we really didn't know uh, localities, specific localities where things were located. It, you're certainly right in assuming that, yeah, people do know a lot about odonates. They're pretty well studied, but there's stuff we are still learning about them, which is crazy. Like, we didn't know until gosh, I can't even give you an estimate on date, but we really didn't know until recently that we had migratory dragonflies, uh, which is crazy. We have dragonflies that migrate from the Arctic all the way to like the southern tip of India. It's insane. I mean, mean, there's so much to know, right? But there's a lot of value to in studying something that's common, that people see and can recognize. I think that's pretty powerful for monitoring programs. Uh, like dragonfly monitoring, like Pond Watch, which is a program that exists today to monitor species changes over time at different mm-hmm. locations. So I think they're great. <laughs> I'm biased. I'm very biased, but I think there's a lot we can still we can still glean from them, particularly in this region in respect to the status and quality of our wetlands. So, do you consider dragonflies to be an indicator species for a quality of a wetland? Yes, yeah. So there's been a number of studies that have picked to certain species that it will will define if a wetland, you know, has really, really, you know, crappy water, really great water quality. I, I agree. I think there must be some species in this region that are, you know, more sensitive to agricultural pesticides and pollutants than others. I, I can't point to any specific ones, but I think they're really important in also defining really great wetland habitat, which would be important to a lot of different species. So maybe even can toss it out there, they could be an umbrella species and that they would, you know, protecting their habitat and, and what they do, you know, basically dictates a lot of the community underneath them too. So, yeah, I really like the concept of umbrella species. And I think looking at it through that perspective can help give focus as to where to give your focus anyway in an imperiled habitat. And as is obvious here in our discussion, we keep feeling the magnetic pull of odinates and, uh, and we keep coming into that topic. I'm going to ask for a little more patience, <laughs> but before we get into that, that's okay. You, you talked about the Ogallala aquifer and the importance of 
these areas in recharge. And I know this is a really interesting and complex topic. And when we talk about aquifer recharge, there are definitely some parallels in other parts of the country as well. Can you just talk a little bit about what aquifers are and how these systems work? Yeah, yeah, of course. So a few things about aquifers. Basically, the best way to think about them are they're just kind of wet dirt deep in the ground. And um, near the surface, you have an unsaturated zone. That's kind of just like where you're walking usually is the unsaturated zone. It's going to have some permeability. So the water is going to be able to trickle down to what we call the saturated zone, which is where we have pores in the rocks that are filled with water. And so we think of the separation of these two zones as what we call the water table. Many people may have heard that before, but it's basically just the barrier. And it's, it's not usually a constant barrier, as we'll discuss with what's happened to the Oglala Aquifer, but a barrier between these two different zones. And so the Oglala Aquifer is ginormous. It covers eight states. So uh, I can list them out too. Wyoming, South Dakota, Nebraska, Colorado, Kansas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, and Texas. So almost the entirety of the Great Plains region has this deep underwater, they call it the underwater ocean. But again, remember Oglala, the aquifer is just basically wet dirt. It's not just this free-flowing kind of ocean environment, uh, which is a misconception many people have. But it has enough water to fill nine Lake Eries. It's huge. It's huge. And because of where it's situated in the country, it actually supports a fifth of all of our agricultural products in the United States. So it's extremely valuable. There's a lot of money in that water, <laughs> despite it just being wet dirt. It's a very, very important resource. Given the agriculture use, is the water extracted through wells and pumping? Definitely, yeah. So the first real official tapping into the Oglala Aquifer for agriculture in this region happened in the 1950s uh, with center pivot irrigation. So kind of when you fly over, they call these states the flyover states because you don't see much, but you'll see a lot of center pivot irrigation. So all the circles that you see when you fly over, those are all connections to the Oglala Aquifer via a well, like you mentioned. Interesting. I didn't know that. I, I thought maybe they were piping it from some other well area, but the center pivot part, that's actually a well right there. There's kind of two different types of like irrigation. I mean, there's a number, but the two main ones are the center pivot, right? With that connection to the Oglala Aquifer. And there's also what used to be really, really popular and is kind of coming back in certain ways is flood irrigation. So opening a well and then just letting the water flow over the landscape through different pits that have the crop in it, the crop in question. Right. You know, all this water, when you mentioned kind of flying over and looking down and seeing all these like green circles all over the landscape. So the scale is obvious when you fly over this country, the, the number of wells that are being utilized for agriculture. How does the aquifer then get recharged? So recharge is basically occurring through natural, natural seepages. So you may think of it as like the bottom of a river can be a seepage, right? It has it's water constantly soil, it's kind of trickling down um, slowly. But in our region, it's really playas uh, that are the recharge zone for the Oglala Aquifer. So if you think of a playa, it's a circular wetland, and it kind of has a, a weird donut in the middle, like a donut shape of sand. So how it holds water is it actually has clay, right? We talked about hydric soils, which do have cracks in them, and the cracks do provide some water to the Oglala Aquifer. But there's also the sand, which are, allows for even more recharge. 
because over time, those cracks in the clay will actually expand so that the basin continues to hold water. The recharge is really happening through the playas, uh, naturally. Like I've, I went and saw, I went out to a survey of playa and a private property, and I literally could see cracks at the bottom of the basin, huge cracks. Like I could put my foot in it. That recharge is happening through that soil down to the aquifer. But there are a couple of ways that we can quote unquote, unnaturally recharge the aquifer. It's the million dollar question uh, with no immediate answer, but some things that have happened and that have been suggested are frankly what, I mean, think of the, the runoff that you get into these playa basins. You're picking up all kinds of sediment and soil that may not be natural to the area. This mixing of sediments in the playa basin could actually be opening up more recharge potentially which does not mean let's go dump a bunch of gravel and apply a basin and then just start the recharge process. But it's happening slowly in certain areas where that kind of sedimentation is occurring. As well as uh, what's recently been found is that these urban playa lakes, what has happened is they've tried to dredge them, right, to hold more water, right? We have these crazy rainstorms every once in a while and it fills up fast. So they're dredging it because usually they're pretty shallow and they actually break up the basin on the bottom, like that original clay and actually allow for more infiltration as well to the aquifer, which is an unintended consequence. And it's been found that if they try to do it intentionally, it actually doesn't work as well as when they did it accidentally, uh, which is kind of the catch-22. Do they understand why, like what's going wrong in the intentional case? No, they don't. It's the weirdest thing. So some people have tried scoring the bottom. So just making like deep slits in the bottom of a playa basin to see if they can encourage more recharge. And it's just never been the same. I don't know if it's the constructive equipment they're using in an urban environment or what, but that's something that's been found to break up the basin clay and then allow for more recharge. Yet they still hold water for longer. Maybe it's the depth. Hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah, I've seen in a few municipalities in the West where like a local water utility has created recharge basins you know, with, with the intention to help this process, to help offset the you know, excessive drawdown that's occurring. And in, in some really well done cases, they have partnered with other groups and created habitats and hiking trails and you know things like that. So there's a really nice one in, uh, in Gilbert, Arizona. There's a couple decent ones here in the South Bay of the San Francisco area. Uh, so, so that's an interesting idea but it sounds like it's really challenging to get it right, to make it work. Extremely challenging. And it doesn't work everywhere. What's really interesting about the Ogallala Aquifer is that it has varying thicknesses. So it's never never the constant, like it's not 200 feet deep all throughout the Ogallala Aquifer. Everyone's just soaking it up. There's parts that are really, really thin, and there are parts that are much deeper. And sadly, in the parts that are have been found to be very deep, have been exploited the most. So Kansas is one of the areas kind of in the worst predicament for where their levels are currently in certain parts of the state with the Ogallala Aquifer where it's dropped up by, I mean, insane amounts, like 100, 150 feet mm. through irrigation. And the areas of recharge, like real, like measured recharge in the Ogallala Aquifer are generally areas where we don't grow anything and no one lives. So the Sand Hill region is actually one area where things are looking pretty good for the Ogallala Aquifer, but... It's only because nobody's there to use the water. That's the Sand Hill region of Nebraska? 
Yes, correct. Yeah, so that's, uh, I think, a lot of grazing land. Few people, lots of cattle. <laughs> exactly, yes. <Yep. laughs> There's no big Lubbock area to suck up water, and, and certainly they're not growing cotton in the sandhills. <laughs> so you, you started to touch on probably a critical point that, you know, I, I'm just assuming here based on what I've read, but, you know, the assumption is that, that we're drawing down on the aquifer at a rate that's likely unsustainable, and it sounds like it's also unevenly unsustainable. What is this general status? Or how do you even measure or know the state of of something that's so hard to see and really wrap your head around? It's challenging. I think the best way to kind of touch on this is uh, a little bit of the regulation of the Ogal Aquifer. And that's saying that there really is no like federal overseeing of it. It is really a state by state case basis for how they're going to measure how much water is there how much they're going to allocate, if anything like that, and then who gets the rights. So there have been a number of legal battles between certain states of, hey, you've taken too much water and now my wells are dry. Well, okay, you put the water back in there, but I can't. There's like this whole whole debate, a really good book to check out if you're interested in the history of this, as well as some current information, is a, a 2006 book called Ogallala Blue by... William Ashworth, um, which is a really great resource for understanding kind of the legality of this. But long story short is, yes, we are sucking up way too much than we currently have. And the catch-22 really is that we're getting more and more efficient with our water resources generally. It's very expensive to put in more efficient, uh, more conservation-oriented drip irrigation and other sorts of irrigation moving away from the center pivot, which a lot of it gets evaporated back up into the air. But because of this, we're actually using more water because it's more efficient to use this water resource. We can grow more crops over more space and we're still draining the Ogallala Aquifer. There really is no definitive date where we expect it to dry up completely. It's just going to be, I think, a big struggle for the future because of how much is grown here. If you bought a pair of jeans in the past probably 10 or 15 years, that cotton came from probably 20 miles around where I'm living right now in Lubbock, Texas, as well as corn. All the major crops are reliant on this on this resource that's really rapidly diminishing. But there are estimates that, oh, we're going to lose it all by 1986 or we're going to lose it all by the 90s. And we still haven't but that doesn't mean it's not a looming thing in the future. Is it fair to characterize our knowledge as very incomplete, like our knowledge of the actual capacity? And, and maybe, and apologies if this is outside of your, your realm of expertise. Yeah, I'll say so for sure if I just... <laughs> I'm sitting here assuming that geologists can go in and do some sort of soundings and get a feel for what is beneath them, but that is going to be within some margin of error. And could probably be defined within that margin of error. Open-ended again, but like, what's our confidence? It sounds pretty low. Like, we, it sounds like we don't really know. I think it's probably a state-by-state basis, but really, I, I'm not terribly sure why like USGS has looked into it. I, I tried, in preparation for this interview, I tried to find some more reports on the status, and I really didn't find a whole lot, which hmm. is concerning. Which is not to say somebody's not out there doing some sound and drilling a well and sewering where we're at, but I think there's a lot of intricacies that I'm not fully aware of with that. Yeah, it sounds like a possible future topic for this podcast, maybe. Get an <laughs> aquifer guy yeah. or, or gal, do it. <laughs> you know, even you were talking about the fact that a lot of people, when they think aquifer, they think of like this underground 
lake or ocean or, you know, something like that with free flowing water, that's, you know, not true. Then I think you can infer that if, for example, you're doing a great job recharging in Texas or in, in the sand hills, that water isn't necessarily going to flow down to Kansas or flow down to, to the panhandle of Texas. Exactly. The flow of that water is extremely slow. I don't even know if we have an estimate on it, but right, like I said, it's it's not like an open reservoir resource. Like I'm from Florida, so when I think of aquifers, I think of the Florida aquifer, which is this limestone, uh, more acidic, has holes in it. And you can really you can swim through the the Florida aquifer, which is pretty amazing. But this aquifer is different. It is it is certainly just a lot of wet sand. And this is more in Oglala Blue, that amazing book I told you guys about. But they've thought about. You know, what if we piped it down from the sand hills? We created this giant pipeline and we piped it down to Kansas where the people need it the most for sorghum and corn. And the cost would just be so exorbitant. It's just not even feasible. Mm. So, yeah, sadly, the only water that's going to end up back in there are through, you know, playas or other recharge, recharge wetlands, truly. Right. And you know, similar problems here in California, in the Central Valley, where the land is sinking dramatically due to yeah. the water extraction. It seems like we're all collectively being very short-sighted in managing these resources. All right. Well, on that sort of negative note, why, why don't we switch now to the, the fun topic of the Odonates and... Yeah, so we already touched on a lot of this, but you know, you've you've been surveying these areas to understand the diversity. Were you surprised in the diversity that you found thus far? I would say yeah, in some areas for sure. I think the most like well, again, since I just started surveying playas, I was really, really drawn to the Salinas, um, just because of how bizarre that landscape looks. We have, let's say, like I said, I, we have 40 in this region, and they're huge. You pull up to a basin, and it's a giant drop-off. Saline shore, which is due to evaporation of a very high mineral content in our groundwater. And it's it's white basins, and you just round a corner, and there's a spring, you know, just a random amount of water flowing into the basin, at least for some of them. And you'll just see dragonflies flying around. It's insane. It looks like literally a scene from Mars <laughs> and there's life there. And so I think that's been the most surprising. And yeah, I assumed when I came here, I was like, Oh, I'll see some stuff at urban wetlands. There's always water there. Like, you know, people go there for birding and other sorts of like naturalist stuff. So I'm sure, I'm sure there'll be ones there, but to picture them in a very saline environment has been pretty insane and thriving too, which is great. So I, I'm not sure what the proper next step is. I'm interested in your surveying process and kind of what the mechanics look like, but I, I don't know if it would be useful to maybe first talk about the life cycle of odonates, because that probably influences how you survey. So you can take that in whatever order you think makes the most sense. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think that is a really good way to start this off. One thing to recognize is that odonates have an egg, nymph, and adult stage. So they're known as hemimetabolists insects. Uh, which is different than other insects which have a pupa stage. We call those holometabolous um, insects. And so, yeah, so a dragonfly will lay an egg, usually in an algal mat, not exclusively, but generally dragonflies will do that. And damselflies, which are smaller, their wings are held together, they actually exclusively put their eggs in the roots of plants. Uh, right by the shoreline. So they actually have a cutting mechanism hmm. on their body to cut into vegetation and lay eggs in there. So the eggs are in there, they're in the water, in the water column. And 
then they will basically go through several development stages as what we call nymphs. So as young, young dragonflies and young damselflies, I guess, in a more general stage. And they'll basically go through several molts of their exoskeleton. So sometimes you'll see on the edges of plants by a wetland, you'll see like little crispy crouton, baby dragonflies. And they look like aliens if you look them up. But those are all their molts, particularly their last molt, which is what they'll do. They'll climb up on that vegetation and molt that final molt and then emerge. Basically, their wings will, will warm up, will pump full of their fluids, and they'll be able to fly then. So then a flying odonate, in the primary, primary things for them are eating and then mating because they're out during the spring and summer months, um, whichever, whichever hemisphere you're from. And so they'll stick basically, they'll, they'll be around the water to breed. So the males are gonna actually defend quote unquote territory and try to attract females. Once that happens, they'll mate, then the cycle starts again. They'll start laying eggs in the algal mats or, or into the roots of plants. I've noticed that some of the recently emergent odonates often are lacking color. Is that typical across species or is that more just specific species that appear that way? That is definitely a thing with young odonates. They'll, their wings will have a weird kind of shimmery sheen to them. They don't look fully, you know, wing-like yet. Uh, and they'll certainly, yeah, they won't have the color that they would have. There's a certain amount of like warming that needs to happen. So these are cold-blooded organisms that will provide some of the more typical coloration we'll see in, in say, an adult that's been flying all summer. Yeah. So if you see a gray or a tan kind of colored odin, it's not necessarily a, a, a crazy new species. It's it's a newly <laughs> emergent <laughs> odin. Yes. A fresh one. <laughs> so water is obviously required for their life cycle. I've also noticed, and we'll, we'll come back to your survey. I, I realize that I, I didn't let you get to that part, but you talk about once they're adults that they're really focusing on eating and mating, and that's largely near water. I know there are some species that will actually go you know, quite far from their, from their water source to feed. How do you characterize that? Like, What should you expect as a naturalist if you're in, on, say, a distant prairie and the water source is a couple miles away and you see a dragonfly flying around, like how typical is that? It's not fairly uncommon. We actually have a number, I think it's six species now of migratory dragonflies that'll literally just, I mean, you think of, let's see, the best way to think of it is, is the ability to disperse for wetlands physically. So a damselfly is pretty small and it's not a powerful flyer. So you're really gonna expect to see those closer to the water or a little bit of a buffer away from a wetland. A dragonfly is actually a pretty powerful flyer. Uh, like I mentioned, some of them migrate. So they actually can move quite far and disperse to other wetlands and you know breed with those females there and so on and so forth. So yeah, long story short, you could see a dragonfly fly through downtown Toronto or you can see one right at your neighborhood park right on the grass. It's really pretty variable. Okay, so it may not be feeding, it may be dispersion due to competition. Uh, or migration. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you gave the example of the migratory, the, the, the crazy example from the Arctic to India. Which are the migratory species we should be looking for here in North America? Yeah. So there are five. And this is from a project called the Migratory Dragonfly Partnership that came out a couple of years ago to monitor these guys. Uh, but I'll list them out for everyone um, so you can keep your eyes out and submit some data. Our largest dragonfly here in like North America that's going to be the most common you'll see is the common green darner. It's a very blue and green guy. And then you have the black saddlebags, variegated meadowhawks, wandering gliders, and then spot-winged gliders. 
And wandering gliders are actually the ones that I mentioned that migrate across oceans. We'll see them here in North America. And we really don't know where they come from, where they start their lives, or where they're ending up going. But those are the guys that are the very powerful flyers, the more larger bodied dragonflies that'll migrate. What is a typical adult lifespan? You know, for for one of these migratory dragonflies, perhaps as compared to a non-migratory dragonfly. So the flight season for an adult dragonfly is spring to summer months. So that depends on your latitude, right? With it really depends on temperature. When is it warm enough for them to emerge and make sense for them、uh, physically? And so, like in my region, they really will start popping up May to about September, October, depending how warm it stays here. But sometimes we'll see the first dragonflies of the scene. Usually, are migratory dragonflies because、mm. they emerged in Mexico. It's warm down in Mexico, and they are just making their way up to Canada, basically. And they do that like in a single lifespan. They make that entire migration, or is it more like a monarch that you have multiple generations? So it's a bit of a multiple generation game. They still, I'll just say, they still migrate twice the distance of a monarch, one individual. But there are a couple cohorts, as we call them,、okay. that that will take the journey along the way. All right. So now, with all of this basic background of life history, how do you go about then surveying, you know, these environments so that you're not, you know, so that you're consistent, not double counting, you know, those sorts of typical issues. Part of its feasibility. So that's a big aspect to collecting biological data. For one time, right? So you want to make sure that you're spending equivalent amounts of time at each site, not just you know spending a, a thousand hours at a salina because as you know the coolest species, you could just keep counting things.、Uh, so I had to figure out how long I was going to spend at each area. I had to figure out how to make it easy to collect data. So you don't want to be out there with like a thousand field sheets and you're just trying to write down every little thing that you've ever thought. <laughs> you have to make it very simple. And then I really needed to find a way to. Capture the community. So, since I mentioned the community, I mentioned who's there. So, who are the individuals present, and then how many, which is the harder part of the question, because double counting dragonflies is a very easy thing to do,、mm-hmm. right? Because they're flying back and forth. We call that hawking down the shoreline, just you know, eating food. You could count a, a single dragonfly ten times in a fifteen-minute survey period, for example. What I ended up doing was creating. Basically, a abundance categorization. So, if they fit in one individuals to five, then they're abundance category one. And so, that gives me a little bit more of a buffer if I double count things, which is definitely possible. Also, like I kind of hinted to, I focus on adults.、Uh, so, adult odonates are by far way easier to identify. Right? They have different colors, different shapes, different sizes. As nymphs, you need a microscope. And a lot of time on your hands to key something out to a species level. For some cases, I chose the easy route, the adults, <laughs> and then I chose to work on a system using actually ArcGIS Survey One Two Three, which is an online like mobile application. I use that to basically write down all the species I have and their abundances at a site. If I kind of play out what I do when I arrive at a site, I'll basically show up. At a decent hour, usually around nine, <laughs> when it's warm enough here, and I will look at a wetland and be like, "Where, where do I picture Onates to be?" And I kind of, 
I don't, I mean, in some ways it's biasing, right? But you don't want to survey an area that's just mowed grass. You would rather survey an area with some emergent vegetation, right? Because that's where we'd expect them to have been or are currently there. And so I do basically three survey points at each wetland for five minutes where I'll count everything I see. And one way that I try to stay away from double counting is I'll separate sample points by distance to try to not overcount everything. Because if something's going to be abundant, it's going to be in a high category. And, you know, I don't need to count 125 damselflies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that doesn't do much for me to, for my study, um, for understanding everyone in the community, not just how many there are. Long-winded, sorry. Oh, no problem. <laughs> uh, it, I, I find it interesting, though, because as someone who, like, my hook into, you know, really getting into nature was birding. And oh, cool. uh, when you go out birding and if you're really uh, kind of obsessive, like I've been at various points, you try to count everything. And when you're looking at doing studies like what you did, you can't do that. Like it's, it's interesting to wrap your head around that. Like you, you have to take a very different approach so you can be consistent. And then it's more about assessing relative abundance as opposed to specific counts. Anyway, it just took me a long time to come to terms with that approach, and it makes a lot of sense. And, and in your case, it sounds like there there was, really wasn't a well-defined protocol. You had to figure it out for yourself. Exactly. Yeah, there certainly are some citizen science projects, like I mentioned Pond Watch, um, where they do have a very sort of strict protocol. But for me, I, I figured I have four different types of wetlands here of varying sizes and qualities. Like, I sometimes I show up to an urban wetland and... For example, like it's all mode, like there's nowhere I would imagine it would need to be. Well, I have to just, I have to pick a spot and go for it and see who flies by. So yeah, I, I, I devised this and certainly had help from obviously my advisor and other folks who've worked on ODNATES for a long time. But yeah, I really had to think about how to get the information I wanted. Well, and the absence of data is data. So, you know, the, yes! you now know for sure. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> my favorite. <laughs> We're nearing the end of our time here. I, I just had a couple of other quick questions. You know, so one for the naturalists out there listening, through all of your experience, like you've had intensive experience seeking out Odinates, what tips do you give to people who maybe are, you know, want to run out this weekend and see what they can find in their local habitat? Well, first of all, thank you for going out to survey for, or at least look for dragonflies. I'm a big fan of that. I think there's kind of two ways to go about it. It's not necessarily uh, damaging or dangerous to yourself or the dragonfly or damselfly in question if you catch them. So some folks may find it to be useful to bring a butterfly net with them if they're going out to maybe look for odonates, as well as perhaps a pair of binoculars if they want to like just you know look at one that's perched on the grass or something. That's a good way to taste uh, to, to see some. But yes, I'm thinking of all the quote unquote nerd gear that I bring, which is probably more excessive than the just the. <laughs> The casual watcher, uh, <laughs> I would say, yeah, just go out and see what you see. Write down the colors that you see. Is it a dragonfly? Is it a damselfly? That's probably a good way to start to think about what's out there. There's a ton of field guides available, especially for, for North America, to seek out to try to actually identify stuff to species level. Dennis Paulson's, mm -hmm. uh, he has Odinates of the West and East guides, pretty popular. Those are um, some of my favorite field guides, right. period, you know, of any, you know, of any taxa. So yeah, the highly recommended. For sure. Yeah. It's always good to have one around, uh, but there are apps. Uh, there's a Dragonfly ID app as well on a phone. Oh. So if you just see something, you're like, well, that was pink. Well, you can also reduce it down to your geography and then what kind of potential species you'd see based on that color. But it's, 
oding is what we call it the the nerdiest way to call it like birding it's oding mm-hmm. <laughs> is really accessible and if you're just out there to look for birds stay an extra hour past past sunrise and you may see some really cool odinates too yeah i and, and that's really sort of how it hits so many people because you go out birding and the birds are more active, say, at dawn and, and shortly thereafter. And then the butterflies and dragonflies get active. So you can just transition into the next thing. Just stay out all day long. Yeah. <laughs> it can be better than that. <laughs> now, is there is there sort of a magic hour? Because, you know, being invertebrates, they, you know, they have to warm up really to get active. So I was thinking that maybe it's interesting to get out there before they start flying. You might find them starting to get active or perching on some vegetation, warming up or sunning themselves or something like that. Is that true? Oh, for sure. Yeah. It, there are, there have been some studies of people have seen odonites at night and I don't know much about that world, but I certainly know for me, like when I'm about to go out and survey, I usually do it about nine o'clock because it gets to be around like 75, 80 degrees. It's really temperature dependent. Um, so if you live in maybe a more higher elevation or northern latitude, you may just want to wait till maybe like around 11. Honestly, it's really temperature dependent. So if it gets above 70 degrees Fahrenheit, you're kind of in a good zone. But certainly it gets, I live in Texas, it gets really hot here. And in the heat of the day when it's like 102, 105, and I'm like, wow, today's been a day. There really is no more, there's a couple, usually maybe a couple dragonflies flying around, but there it's really hot. So there's not a whole lot flying. Mm. You'll sometimes see uh, I see this a lot in dragonflies. There's a position where they like lean their abdomen, so the last part, last segment of their bodies, towards the sun. Uh, so they look kind of crazy. They look like they're doing a headstand. And they're actually reducing the surface area to the sun and cooling down in the heat of the day. So I'd say a sweet spot is a couple hours after sunrise when it starts to warm up to before the heat of the day, probably. Mm-hmm. I think most species are sexually dimorphic yeah yeah for sure so it gets a little complicated uh for dragonflies yes so the females will generally have a different coloration than the males for damselflies it's a little funny there'll be a male coloration and then sometimes there'll be two or maybe even three different colorations for female damselflies they'll usually be one that mimics the male one that has kind of a totally different coloration and sometimes one in between those uh, which makes it harder to identify female dragonflies to species sometimes. They're a bit more challenging. But yeah, so you'll see some different colors. So that wouldn't be dimorphic. What what would that be called? <laughs> oh my gosh. It's like, so the two terms are an andromorph and a heteromorph. And if you look in Dennis Paulson's guide, you'll see varying colors and whatnot. But colors actually, although it appeals to our eyes, and that's how we, you know, say identify, you know, certain species, it's not always the most trusted thing in the world, too, uh, because actually dragonfly and damselfly colorations can change with temperature. So on some days, you could be really, really striking blue, and then other days, it's a very dull blue. Kind of working more towards body shape and different patterns is kind of more helpful in the long run. And I guess that those are a few of the field marks to look for then are abdominal markings, wing, spots on wings, things like that. Anything else? That's really the major stuff. Sometimes, and if you really get into it, you'll get into more behavioral stuff. So how things fly can kind of sometimes dictate different species. But that's really, yeah, that's the start. And I'd say, you know, don't shy away from color. I mean, it's pretty, for males, it is a sure thing, color. It just may not look as vibrant as you see them in the guides. And the great thing about Paulson's book is he lists similar species. So you can go and compare and contrast. 
All right. So to wrap things up, there's a couple of questions I like to ask. And since, since I consume so much time on the core content, I'll, I'll maybe <laughs> skip a couple of them. From your research, your background, if there was sort of like, say, one ecological concept that you wished the general public knew about, and you could just sort of magically impart that on them to help them kind of see the world like you see it, what would that be? I think, and this is a new term for me, I actually learned it at the start of my, of my master's program. Uh, there's a term called ecological trap. And what an ecological trap is, it's basically a low quality habitat that animals prefer over other available or high quality habitat. So this is kind of the what I was talking to you about with urban sources, right? So there's a lot of issues there. There's some water quality issues, the habitat's usually not great, but you'll find a great abundance sometimes of odonates there, which is not great for them in the long run, right? There may not be enough prey items for them. There may not be possible perches or in areas to attract mates, but there's an abundance of them there. It's a trap for the long run. So that's something that I don't think many people realize because the you know there's lots of restoration processes out there. There's people wanting to restore habitat. It's great, um, but sometimes what we have in our area that most animals want to go to, rather than the fancy you know restored prairie, is a crappy stormwater pond. Mm. And so we need to recognize that these areas and these habitats um, have some value to them. Yeah, that's another really interesting concept that I hadn't thought about at all. And you mentioned a few resources throughout our conversation, but are there any other books or websites or documentaries on Netflix or, you know, whatever the case might be that you think that, you know, might be relevant to this conversation that people should check out? Sure. Yeah. So, um, a good resource for Playa information is Playas of the Great Plains by Lauren Smith. It came out, I think in 2003, but it's, it's our guide to basically everything we know currently about Playas. Obviously stuff has been done since 2003, but that's a pretty good resource. Some websites, so the Dragonfly Society of the Americas, um, which is a, a cool little group of cats that uh, get together and go oding and and uh, submit actually pretty quality uh, sightings and records through the website Odonata Central, um, which is a great place to submit your data if you see, you know, say, for example, a flame skimmer or a really identifiable dragonfly. You can remember or write down the coordinates of where you saw it and submit it for them, which is a really important resource for all of us. I really wish there was a compelling Netflix documentary on Odinates. If anyone wants to collaborate on that, let me know, because I think they're amazing. But sadly, not so much on that on that scene. But yeah, Dennis Paulson's Guides, Oglala Blue, amazing book. And then The uh, Plies of the Great Plains is excellent, too. Yeah, and I think I know, because I own it, that Dennis Paulson has another interesting book. It's, it's not a field guide. It's more about life histories of Odonates around the around the world. And he highlights a lot of interesting species with great photography as well. That's a, a very nice book too. Oh, for sure. It's excellent. Beautiful book. I'll make sure to link to all of these as always in the show notes. Can't recall the title of that one offhand, but yeah, just if you look for Dennis Paulson, Dragonflies, you'll find all of these. Okay. Through the magic of editing, I can tell you that it's called Dragonflies and Damselflies, A Natural History from Princeton University Press. And, and for you specifically, do you have any upcoming projects you want to highlight and how can people follow what you're up to? Sure, sure. So upcoming projects is writing my thesis. <laughs> so I'm in the, my final throes of my field season. So I'm, I'm going to be a uh, nose to the grindstone this fall and spring, getting that together to defend. Um, so hopefully I should have some, some publications and uh, manuscripts coming out eventually. But the one that I just put out was with my advisor, Dr. Nancy McIntyre. You can find that 
uh, it's for free. It's a, uh, I'm sure you can link it in the show notes, mm-hmm. but um, that's widely accessible. I'm really trying to up my outreach presence. That's one of my goals for the next year. So here we are on a podcast, but I'm on social media. I'm danielle.husband, uh, like husband and wife is what I tell people. Do you remember it? I'm not making it up, I swear. Yeah, I'm just trying to get the word out there. Onates are amazing. I'm trying to get a job in the next year. Follow me for some really dorky and fun stuff. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed discussing all of this with you. It's obvious that you have a bright future ahead of you. And I'm looking forward to your thesis and whatever comes after that. So thank you so much for spending the time today. Thank you, Michael. I really enjoyed it. We live in a world where sound bites dominate and true understanding is shrinking. Nature's Archive podcast digs a little bit deeper, hoping to help the world understand nature just a little bit more. I hope that this podcast has planted a seed of interest that will grow into something special for you. I record, produce, edit, and publish a show by myself as a personal passion. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and then please turn around and share this episode with a friend or a family member that you think might like it. I'm not asking for money or donations, just a gift of sharing. Thanks for your support. You can also follow me on Instagram at Nature's Archive or Facebook, also Nature's Archive. In addition to sharing information about podcasts at those locations, I also share some of my photography and some short explanations of what I'm seeing. Lastly, if you have any suggestions for guests or topics for me to cover, please email me at naturesarchivepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. And one last word, I want to make sure to give credit to the music that you hear in the podcast. The opening song is called Fearless First by Kevin McLeod, and the closing song is called Beauty Flow, also by Kevin McLeod. You can find his work at incompetech.filmmusic.io.